I want to just think about wisdom for a moment. The world has plenty of wisdom on offer. Nobody wants to live life poorly. Everybody wants to live life well. You're going to find wisdom rammed down your throat or, or just like in the air that you breathe when you step outside of those doors. You're going to find it when friends talk to one another. So-and-so is talking to one another about their relationship. What should they do? You're going to see it in the paper, on the evening news. You're even going to see it in the entertainment. Think about the music you listen to. Think about like... Um, relationships. You know, you'll treasure what you have before it's gone. Uh, that's what Beyonce says. And if you liked it, you should have put a ring on it. It's, 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 it's wisdom. It's really, this is how to live well, whether it's Bob Dylan, Beyonce, whatever. There's this moral framework that pushes it all along saying, live like this and don't live like that. It's in our films. I watched uh, Philomena recently, and I think it's a real interesting character study between a hurt woman and a vigilante, justice-seeking journalist. And it's really about comparing the two. Then there's also Saving Private Ryan in that amazing last scene where Tom Hanks looks up and says, earn this. And you think the takeaway of the film is, I want to live a life that's worthwhile. It's in our entertainment. It's even on Instagram, and I think this is probably like the Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, this is probably the, um, the bottom of the barrel because they have like these strange, like I'm sure you've seen the, the, the pictures. There's like a mountain range, an amazing epic mountain range. It's got this sweet filter on it and then it's like, what's stopping you from accomplishing your dreams? That's right, nothing. And it's basically telling you, go seize the day. That's the wisdom that's on offer. Or there's like the, you know, the person standing up on the mountaintop, shoot for, the, you know, shoot for the moon. If you miss, you'll land among the stars. And it's just, they're saying, this is how you ought to live. A lot of it comes back to believe in yourself. That's the way you live well. The world's wisdom It's on our computer desktop backgrounds. It's on our Instagram feeds. It's on Twitter. It's in our Facebook. It's in the films we watch. It's in the music that we listen to. It's everywhere. But the Bible has a lot to speak about how we should live. And interestingly, in a sharp contrast from the way the world portrays wisdom, the Bible consistently paints wisdom in two paths, two ways. Black, white, light and dark. Life and death, blessings and curses, righteousness and unrighteousness. But sometimes the wisdom that we see in the Bible doesn't seem to be working. And that's where this psalm comes in. What happens when you are doing what's right and it doesn't seem like it's working out? It seems like you're doing what God says promises blessings and yet you find curse. You find curses. You find it doesn't go well for you. And that's the backstory for this psalm. If you've uh, got it, you can turn there. It's in Psalm 52. And to structure this message, I'm just going to be using a cheesy little wisdom slogan. I'm not sure if you've heard it. Live, laugh, love. Basically saying, you know, oh, just do what you like. Enjoy what you can and love what you will because that's the way you want to live life. But the Bible paints a different picture from this psalm. 
And the backstory, I'm not going to read it out, but you can see there right up where it says 52. It says, to the choir master, a mascal of David, when Doeg, the Edomite, came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. There's a whole backstory, and that, that um, description there is in the original Bible. It's, a, it's inspired scripture. And so it tells us we should understand what was going on to make sense of what the backstory is, to make sense of what the psalm is saying. And the backstory is that David has just been anointed king. And Saul has been passed over. Saul is seeking to eliminate David as a rival. His suspicion, his jealousy is driving him to a murderous rage and David is on the run. David is helpless. He doesn't even have a weapon at this point. He's he's hopeless. He doesn't have a, a view of the future. He's harmless, as I said. He's got no weapon. He's got no friends. He's alone. And where does he turn up? He goes to the only place he can go. He goes to church. He goes to a tabernacle that is at Nob. And he goes to the priest Ahimelech. And he says, do you have any bread? And this is when the priest gives David and his men the bread of the presence. But it says there was a man there. There was another man at church that day. And we don't know what he was doing at church. We don't know if he was there seriously, if he was fulfilling vows. But another man's there named Doeg, the Edomite. And some of you have asked me about names and all that kind of stuff. And there's a joke now that I'm going to call our first son Daniel Jr., Daniel Jr. Skeed. Um, we're not going to call him that, but we're certainly not going to call him Doeg. I don't think you've met a Doeg, but we're going to learn a bit about Doeg and not just why he's got a really weird name to our ears. Doeg is high up in Saul's trusted circle. Doeg is called the master of the king's herds. So he probably takes care of all of Saul's livestock. He might not be a shepherd himself, but that's something that him and David may have in common. So he's a man of influence. He's a man of power. But he's an outsider. And yet we see him here. He's walking into church. He's walking into where the Israelites worshipped. And he observes what just happened. But he keeps his silence. He keeps his peace for a bit. He doesn't rat David out right away. But until Saul's, his murderous jealousy reaches a fever pitch, when he comes up to this, to this village at Nob and he says, you guys are for David, you're not for me. And it's at that point where he goes up to Saul and says, I saw, I saw David go into the house of Ahimelech. He sells David out to Saul. Saul is pushed over the edge into that rage, into that jealousy, and he says, kill them all. And his guards say, we we can't do that. Up until this point, there'd been two anointed kings. You had David, who was anointed um, after Saul fell, and then Saul is still in power. But there hadn't been bloodshed between the two factions. In fact, David had been trying to avoid that And Saul takes it to that final breaking point by saying, kill them. And his his Israelite guards won't do it. But guess who's Johnny on the spot? Guess who's ready at that point? Doeg. And so you can read in 1 Kings, or sorry, 1 Samuel 21, 22. 
He goes through the village at Nob. He kills 85 unarmed priests. He kills their wives, their children, and their livestock. He just wipes them out. And he probably had help or whatever it was. But when Saul, in his jealousy, commanded them to be killed, he was the one on the spot. One priest escapes. His name's Ahitub, also another name we're not considering. Um, Ahitub makes it to David, and David goes, oh, he's cut. He's, he says, oh, if this is because I brought this on. And he says, the man who seeks your life seeks my life also. Come take refuge with me. And then David writes this song, this psalm. He writes about the wisdom. What, how are we to live when it seems like isn't working well for people who want to live according to God's way? How, does it, how are we to live when the righteous seem to be persecuted? How you live shows what wisdom you're trusting in. We can see here, it comes up right in that first verse. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Why do you boast of evil? That's one way of living, trusting in that and making that your stronghold. Almighty oh, man is probably a bit of a taunt. Um, it's the word for a warrior, but as, as you see here, as I've just shared, he wasn't much of a warrior. He just was a, a thug. And on the other hand, David says this, the steadfast love, God's loyal covenant love, his unfailing love, his grace endures the whole day. He says to a man like Doeg, he says to Doeg, your tongue plots destruction. Like a razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Selah. You love all words that devour, O oh, deceitful tongue. You see, Doeg is pushing himself forward at another's expense. He views the people around him as a stepping stone to get where he needs to go. He's so insecure that he ingratiates himself. He wants to weasel his way into Saul's favor even further, even if it means he gets his hands dirty, even if it means he gets his hands bloody. Wisdom literature in the Bible often, like we said, teaches in these black and white examples. And the, and the wisdom here is don't live like Doeg. Don't be like him. I'm not sure if you've seen those pop up, the, the be like the stickman bill that pops up. It's basically a way for people to tell one another what they should or shouldn't do. It's like, here's Bill. Bill leaves the, the toilet seat up. Don't be like Bill. You know, or it's, it's, a, it's very... Um, you know, a very clear picture of that, but, but the reason Doeg's in here, what we see is don't be like Doeg. Don't trust, don't boast in evil. Don't think your security comes from yourself. And if we look around, we see Doeg's everywhere. Um, people who terrorize other people. You've got dictators, you've got abusive rulers and authorities, you've got greedy individuals, you've got greedy corporations who squeeze the helpless for everything they can get. 
But doesn't it also refer to regular people like you or me? People who might want to put themselves ahead at someone else's expense. People who, well, we may not say we love lying words, but we'll twist the situation. We'll massage the facts a bit to put ourselves in a better light. We might want to push our own agenda, use other people as a ladder to climb up onto, but the Bible says that this isn't living wisely. This isn't the way to live. That's Doeg's way of life. Don't be Doeg. The other way, as we will go into, it's trusting in God's grace, resting in his mercy, not relying on what you can do, but trusting in what he has done. And it becomes more clear as we read through. Verse five says this. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, see the man who would not make God his refuge but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. The second indicator of what kind of wisdom you're living by is what do you laugh at? What gives you joy? And here we see in verse five that eventually God intervenes. It says, God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you up from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. See, no cop can catch every criminal. No government can enforce justice perfectly. No court can give us that. But it says here that God will step in. God will intervene. And like a gardener picks up a a thorny little weed, he will pluck Doeg up and uproot him from the land of the living. You see, there's only so much that Doeg can do before God says enough and steps in. God holds every life in his hand. And when he says enough, that's it. When he calls time, that's all they have. Now they have to face God. And now they have to give him an account. God steps in. How should we respond? We'll look here. It says in verse six, the righteous shall see and fear. When we see God intervene, whether that's in this life or when he comes to judge, we will be filled with reverence. We will see it, but we will fear. It's not laughing at them right now. It's not mocking the people who are facing judgment. It's not a light thing. It hits us with reverence because we know that but for the grace of God, we would be in that position. And because it's become so apparent now that the way of living that the things that they trusted in are so 
inadequate, that it's become laughable. We become joyous because there's no more oppression. Aren't you going to be happy? I'm going to be really happy when there aren't human traffickers around. I'm going to be ecstatic when children don't die in the womb before they get a chance to breathe. I'm going to be jumping for joy on that day because justice will have come. But it's not laughing at people. It's not laughing at people under that justice. It's not mockery. It's gladness that God is making things right. And so the question is, what's going to cause you to rejoice? That shows the wisdom you're living by. Paul puts it this way, love rejoices with the truth, but not in wrongdoing. We are going to cheer someday louder than the sports fans and the, and the people at the concerts do. We are going to cheer louder than them when God's justice is enforced. There's the um, English writer Douglas Adams, and I think this story that he, uh, he shares that happened to him, he says, I think it, it expresses beautifully the English temperament, which is an inability to deal with awkward situations and not knowing what to do. And I find that great because I, I tend to have awkward situations follow me around and then I get to see how you English people react to that. So Douglas Adams, 1976, he's in Cambridge. Um, he's catching a train. He turns up early. He got the timetable wrong. He turns up early to catch his train and he goes, oh man, I've got like 25 minutes. So he walks up to the newsstand, he picks up a newspaper, a packet of biscuits, and a coffee, and he goes and says, can we kill some time? Puts his packet of biscuits down, opens up his newspaper, starts sipping his coffee, and, and across from him is a, uh, just an average bloke, guy in a suit, respectable dude, also reading a newspaper, also drinking his coffee. He thinks nothing of it until this man uh, looks down at his packet of biscuits and opens it up and um, proceeds to take one of his biscuits and then eats it. And Douglas Adams says, what am I going to do? I've got no training. I don't, my, my, my British upbringing has n- given me nothing to deal with a situation like this. And so he thinks, well, what am I going to do? Well, okay, so he, he uh, looks up. He says, can't, can't, I can't talk to him about this. So, so he reaches down, grabs a biscuit, and picks it up and looks at him and enjoys the biscuit and goes back to reading. And then the man across from him does it again. Reaches down, grabs a biscuit, dips the biscuit, eats the biscuit, and he's like, oh no, well, I, I, I can't bring this up now because it's gone too far. So he takes another biscuit and then starts doing that. And they go back, they trade biscuit for biscuit until the whole pack is gone. The businessman's train comes, he folds up his newspaper, takes a packet of, the empty packet of bis- uh, biscuits, finishes his coffee, runs off, and then catches his train. Douglas Adams waits a bit longer. He sees his train has come in. He folds up his newspaper, gulps down his coffee, and finds his packet of biscuits unopened beneath his newspaper. And he says the best part of it is knowing that for 25 some odd years, someone has walked around England or Britain without a punchline. He knows the punchline. Do you know that there are people walking around this city who are living an unfinished joke? They're waiting for a punchline. 
Yes, there are people that walk around that actually think their security comes from their possessions and what they can draw to themselves and the people that they relate with and what they can earn and the people they can influence. They actually think that that will give them security, will give them purpose. They think that's wisdom. That's laughable. That's a joke because that's the very thing that threatens to destroy them. You see, we're not going to laugh at these people today, but we can see that this is trusting in wisdom that's going to let them down. It may not seem that way today. It may seem like they're doing quite well. It may seem that they are very happy, but one day that great crash is going to come. Jesus puts it that way in Matthew 7. He says, there are two ways to build your house, two places to build your house, and both of them seem fine until the rain hits, until judgment And then the foundation gives way on one. Are you a joke awaiting a punchline? Are you living your life in a way that people will say they're building well, they're building securely? Do you have a foolish self-trust that will lead to self-destruction? Or do people around you have that? They need to know what God says. They need to know the wisdom of how they ought to be living. Maybe a great picture of this, I had to look this up for work, um, in, a, in a, um, an abandoned nuclear silo in Kansas, deep beneath the ground, between you know, meters of concrete. People are building luxury survival condos. Because what's better than surviving a nuclear holocaust or a flood or a zombie invasion than surviving in luxury? And so in this luxury survival condo, and this is, I, there are people who are building this and they're, they're actually trusting in this. They're, they're, they're putting their money into this and they think this is going to make them safe. There are um, large screen, uh, there, there's, there's a theater, there's a place to grow vegetables by hyd- hydroponics. And even in your rooms, because remember, you're, you're deep underground. There's nothing, there's no, no light, no natural light. Instead of windows, you've got large LCD screens which show you pictures of the outside world. Pretty little farms and mountain vistas so that you don't feel like you're beneath layers and layers of concrete hiding for your life. It's a picture of what we will go to, the lengths we will go to to make ourselves safe. You see, this is the kind of life that's missing God's intent for it. It's missing God's wisdom on how to live well. And the last thing we're looking at is love because this shows really the wisdom. This is the the fundamental thing. What you love, what your heart is set on shows the wisdom you're living by. David continues after verse seven, he says in verse eight, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. Picture that, a beautiful, flourishing, fruitful olive plant bearing fruit in the house of God. And this is how the Bible's wisdom pictures the life as God intends it to be, life as God intends it to be. It pictures it as a fruitful green plant, flourishing. You can remember Psalm 1. This is how the wise live, and they're like a tree that bears fruit in every season, and their leaf never never withers. 
On the other side, we see Doeg. We see that he not only boasts in what's evil, he not only does it, he's proud of it. He flaunts it. He throws his weight around. He's crafty. And it says most damningly in verse three, you love evil more than you love good. What his heart loves shows the wisdom he's living by. You see, we're going to be frustrated in trying to live wisely. Frustrated in trying to live well until we recognize that the problem is our heart. And what we love shows so clearly whether we're living for God's wisdom or whether we're drowning in our own folly. And that's why I think we might get the Instagram type wisdom, the, the, the music we listen to, we might get something out of it, but it seems kind of cardboard and thin because it doesn't get to this level. It doesn't get to the problem of the heart. It has a quaint ring about it, a slogan, but it has no power to change. It's a half-truth, and it's wholly unhelpful. It's like painting a crumbling wall with another coat of paint and thinking, that's fine. No, it's foundationally insecure. It's like offering plastic surgery to a cancer patient. The problem goes much deeper than the skin. The world's wisdom can't change us. The world's wisdom can't satisfy. It can't help us live. And I want to just, we're going to wrap up with three ways that David gives us here to incline our hearts to God's wisdom. It says in verse 8, But I am like a green olive tree, flourishing as God intended. In the house of God, I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. His faith is set on what God, on who God is and what he can do. It's not in his craftiness. It's not in the things that he can do. It's not even in the good things that he's done. His only hope is that God would be merciful. His only hope is that God would show him grace. And that's the difference. There's a story of, um, this actually happened in 1748. There was a young man on the high seas. He was on a trade ship off the coast of Africa, boat laden with beeswax and timber. And as he slept on the, the 21st of March, a storm kicked up ripped through the side of his boat and cold seawater funneled into his cabin, waking him up. And then he started scrambling. Everyone, all hands on deck. They lost one guy, but they started working the pumps through the night to get all the extra water out of this heaving ship as it made its way back. They were miles and miles away from shore. Now, this guy wasn't a good guy. In fact, you would say, if you met him on the street, he's probably a little more like Doeg than like David. He would have been, um, how do we say it, just promiscuous as a sailor, uh, frequenting brothels. I I think even a a prostitute once took him up for swearing too much. 
If you think about that, if, if you know, prostitutes are taking up a sailor for swearing too much, that's pretty low. What was worse is that he was involved in the slave trade. This was before it was outlawed, some 60 years before. And he was even a captain, which means that perhaps he would have been involved in horrific abuse of slaves, especially the women. And uh, sexual abuse would have been, it's not definitive, but it was probably, probably would have happened. A man who, who needed, would have deserved no, no mercy from God. And yet as he's pumping for his, frantically for his life, trying to get the seawater out, he, he gets completely exasperated at one point. He says, well, if this won't do, then it's all down to the mercy of God. We'll have to trust in the mercy of God, he's saying. And he says, that word struck him like an arrow because it was the first time in years, in his whole life, in his 22 years, that he had actually trusted in God's mercy, that he had put himself only on what God would show him in his mercy. And he changed. He started changing. He, he became more of a, he became a better person. He converted. His name's John. His last name's Newton. He started campaigning against the slave trade that he, uh, he was involved in, eventually seeing success. He became a pastor. He wrote hymns, which we know and we sing today. He was changed because he trusted in the mercy of God only. That was when the turning point came in his life. See, that's the difference between David and Doeg. It's not that David is a model Christian, a model spiritual person. It's that he trusts in God's steadfast love only. If you can get to the point where you can say that is your trust, that's when your life will change. And even reading what you wrote or what Andy wrote in in Salt this week about the difference between Augustine and, and Kurt Cobain, what's the difference? One... Both of them found the end of themselves. One of them trusted in God's grace. That's the difference. That's the way. That's the way we can flourish. You see, God knows you're not all that. God knows I'm not all that. The person who needs to figure that out is us. The person who needs to figure it out that we can't rely on what we can do. We can't trust in ourselves. We can only trust in him alone. The person that needs to figure that out is us. And the second way, his heart is shaped by gratitude. His heart overflows in love for what God has done. Jesus says that if you're forgiven much, you love much. Verse nine says this, I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will thank you forever. He recognizes there's no difference between him and Doeg. It's because God has shown him grace. David did nothing to earn it, to deserve it. You know, in fact, David is is quite, he's not a great picture, is he, of faithfulness. Towards the end of his life, he seems to waver and he falls into failure. But the difference was he trusted in God. He trusted in God's grace. And you see, David is probably looking forward. He knows, he says, I I will thank you because you have done it. What's he looking forward to? When Doeg dies? When Doeg's judged? Yeah, in a way. But fully and finally, 
when God intervenes, when God steps in to deal with injustice, we see that so clearly at the cross. It's out of focus here and it's fully in focus when we look back at Jesus' life. That's the only way a just and holy God could accept us into his presence and pay the penalty that we deserved. Shouldn't we be more thankful? Shouldn't we be more grateful for what God has shown us in Jesus Christ? You see, I'm just amazed. My hands will never bear the scars my sins deserve. My side will never be pierced. My back will never carry the sicknesses and the sins which I deserve. And yours won't either. I won't carry the marks of my shame. You won't. You know, even our righteousness, Jesus' righteousness is credited to us. The best I can do on the you know, when I think I'm doing perfectly, it still falls short. And yet Jesus covers me completely. Shouldn't we be more grateful? Shouldn't we be the first to say, thank you, Jesus, you have done it. I don't bring anything to salvation but the sin that made it necessary. And everything I do now is a response to the grace which he shows. Thank you, Jesus. And the last thing which David would say if we want to incline our hearts to wisdom, we looked at we got to trust in God's steadfast love, his grace. We've got to overflow with love and gratitude for what he's done for us. But it's there in the last half of verse 9. He says, I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. His heart is full of hope. I will wait for your name. You see, with God's people, David is waiting for God to step in and deliver. You see, unlike Doeg, who takes matters into his own hands, David has set his hope on God and what God's going to do. Now, it's a bit of a funny way of saying it. I will wait for your name. I've never waited for someone's name. I've waited for people, but I think if we look back to how a name is used in the Bible, it represents everything that that person's about. Their reputation, their honor, their glory, when we think about God, is contained in his name. And of course, God's name He's a righteous God. He's a holy God. He can't tolerate sin. And yet when we see the injustice in the world, when we see even when it seems like the righteous aren't prospering, we can say, God, your name isn't being hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. We need to wait for his name. David needed to wait. And we see part of the fulfillment. We see what God did at the cross But we are looking forward to a day when the name above every other name causes everyone to bow. In that day, there will be no injustice. In that day, there will only be righteousness and truth and love and joy. But until then, we are waiting. We are waiting for when the name of Jesus is revealed and he sets up his kingdom in finality and nothing will threaten that. 
So when we look out at the news, when we look out in the world, when we see a place, this world, where it seems like dough eggs thrive, dough eggs get ahead, we need to wait with God's people. He's delivered us from our sins through Jesus, and he will come and he will set this world right. That should give us hope. I will wait for your name, for it is good. And until then, we walk with a heart inclined to his wisdom in faith, in hope, and in love. I'm going to pray, and we're going to celebrate communion. We thank you, Lord Jesus, because you have done it. We thank you that you, in your infinite mercy, and your perfect justice, they met in you at the cross, and we can go free. We can come into a relationship with you. Help us to walk in wisdom. Help us to share the wisdom of your gospel with the people in this area, the people we meet, the people we see tomorrow. Help us to offer them a better way to live. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.